We all remember recess growing up in school. Recess was a time of day where you could have all the conversations that you could not have while in class. Recess, recess is where you had the real conversations and real conversations we're going to have. In each episode of the Recess Podcast, I'm going to have real conversations explaining students and school. I'm David McGuire, and I'll be your host. It's recess time, y'all. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the latest episode of the Recess Podcast. I'm your host, David McGuire. This is episode 23, and I am excited about this episode. This is education on a Tuesday night. So, you know, when I do these conversations, it's going to be real nerdy and educational. And I have with me a doctor, and we're going to have a (laughs) tremendous conversation about a variety of things. But a lot of the things we're going to talk about, I'm going to be honest, folks. it's for my development personally, so that I, I did script these questions for me, but I do believe that these are questions that you all have as well. But as always, appreciate everybody rocking with us. If you're in the comments, like and share this video, jump in the comments with your own questions. Otherwise, I'm going to take over the conversation with my questions. Uh, but again, appreciate you rocking with us. It's episode 23, Education on a Tuesday Night. Without further ado, I have our guest introduce herself before we jump into our focus question of the day, which I think you'll really enjoy. So. I'm gonna give you the solo screen. Tell the folks who you are. Uh, you know the work that you're doing and everything like that. Yeah. Well, good evening, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. I hope you and your family are well, physically and emotionally, wherever you are. I. It is such an honor to join you tonight uh, to have a, a talk about education, which is my passion. I'm Renee Aziz. I spend my days. Uh, and nights um, working with educators. Uh, that is, I feel like the luckiest job ever. Um, and kind of my journey uh, through education has been a tremendous one. Um, I started my career um, after graduating from Indiana University as a behavior consultant in the Indianapolis public schools uh, way back in uh, more than 20 years ago. Um, you know, we still, we had in those early days, um, school and mental health partnerships. So I was part of the mental health partnership in IPS schools. I got to work at school 54 and 27, uh, really working with um, students who needed those services. I learned a lot about education. Um, And I, that's kind of when I got bitten by the the researcher bug, uh, because I spent my day supporting students to, um, meet expectations academically and behavioral in the classroom. And I found myself, which hopefully we'll talk about today, always in special ed classrooms. And so I was like, what is this about? So long story short, that um, sent me back to school. I went back to uh, graduate school at Indiana University uh, and I got my graduate degree in school psychology. And I practiced as a school psychologist in local schools here in the Indianapolis area for several years before I transitioned again and started doing state level work. So traveled from top to bottom of our state here in Indiana and in um, states across our nation and learned really about the practical side of all that research that I had done at IU. Um, so that was fun work and, um, I was traveling so much that I decided through my learning experiences that I wanted to really be able to meet the needs of educators, uh, in the way that I felt was best. And so I started my own company and that's what I'm doing now. Virtuoso Education Consulting. I started as a team of one, but now I have some great folks that are helping me every day work with educators to uh, be able to support the needs of students and their family. So excited to be able to have a chat with you tonight, David. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. And love it. And so, like I said, you know, always supporting black businesses, especially yeah, in education. Thank so you for that. we're going to definitely, we're gonna definitely have you talk about that a little more and, and share folks how they can reach out to you and things like that. So okay. I'm, I'm going to jump right into this article and, and it's something that you sent me a while back. Uh, and so, so folks that are watching live and so, um, and if you if you end up watching this later, uh, I'll give you the name of it. But folks that's watching it live, I'm going to share this on the screen. Um, and it's an article from The Atlantic. And it, it titled, Why Schools Need More Teachers of Colors for White Students. Um, so those that have been rocking with me, I've shared this story. And I shared it with you, Doc, you know, prior to we, us getting on. Two of my uh, favorite teachers I had were, were white women, right? And as I grew up, the perception that I had 
for white women, I always associated to them, how they treated me, the type of teachers they were, the type of women and people they were, just how they treated me as a, as a young black male. Like I really, um, I really appreciated that. Um, mm -hmm. And so I always associate that. So when I saw this article and I said, you know, why schools need more teachers of color for white students? We always talk about the need for teachers of color for students of color, but you don't hear this too often um, about the need that it has, you know, for, for white students. So doc, when, when, when you, right. You read this and you shared it with me. You know, what were your thoughts um, about this when, when you read it and just how important this is in our education uh, landscape? Well, what struck me was the fact that I think it's been my experience working with educators all across the nation that when we start to have conversations about really anything related to cultural responsive, whatever, the conversation is always on students of color and what they need and how they benefit. But what this article I think does a great job of highlighting is the need for students who some might use the term majority, um, for students who are uh, not students of color. It's important that they also develop bicultural language and understanding about cultural difference. I always tell the educators that I'm working with that here we are as adults who've been in education, we're highly educated, and here we are in this room trying to learn about culture. Imagine if we did that for students. A lot of times in education, we fear having conversations about culture and race and social political things with students, but if we did that, we wouldn't have to do that as adults. So this article, I think, does a great job of sharing how, similar to your experience, if you see people of various cultures, mm -hmm. racial cultures, religious differences, socioeconomic uh, differences, language, if we see folks, then we are less likely to have a bias toward them because then we start to have a mental model of what that represents. I know you share with me that your some of your favorite teachers were white women. And so now when you think of white women, they're the images. So that's yep. the mental model that we want to start to um, to really uh, support students in developing at a very young age. We have all the research about how teachers of color benefit students of color. But there's the same research that says that by having teachers of multiple cultures, the ways in which they can support students to develop this critical consciousness, as Dr. Gloria Langston Billings would say. And, mm -hmm. th and that's really the key. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and to your point, when you, when you as leaders of students or principals of color and uh, teachers of color, right, there's also this representation of, of being that, that role model and, and, and also eliminating those stereotypes that all kids yeah. will have when they think of men of color, right? And that's one of the things that mm -hmm. I always try to carry. While it is a heavy burden, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and it's a lot to put on somebody. But when you step in that role as a classroom teacher or classroom principal or classroom, you know, whatever in the school in front of children, right? It is something that you have to be aware of. And it is it is a burden yeah. that you must carry. And you must, you must own up to it. And I think it's important, but especially now in the times that we live in now with, with all the racial uh, injustice that's happening, Right. Absolutely. And, and, absolutely. and the way in which things like we, we have just more of an obligation. So powerful mm -hmm. article. Again, it's, it's, it's in the Atlantic. Um, I'll drop the link um, after the show and share it with you. But I would, would love for you guys to, to read it and, and share your thoughts. But if you have read it, yeah. share your thoughts about that as well in the comments. So we're going to jump in. So, so, Doc, when you think about your work um, and, and mm -hmm. working with schools and working with teachers and working with leaders, how would you describe the current state? of education in Indianapolis. I always ask this question to lead off the show because I want to have a real conversation. And so perspective for me is good. So how would you describe the current state of education in our in Indianapolis? Oh, wow. Well, there's a lot that you could say about that. Um, but I'll, I'll do the caveat part based on my work, right? There are many ideas that I have about the state of education, but being that my predominant work is around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, I think that in Indianapolis and really all across our state, 
people really are trying to be more intentional about how they are supporting all students and how they're being, um, how they're specifically addressing issues of equity. It's hard work. And I think that, you know, the events of uh, the summer of this year with the murder of George Floyd and principals like you, uh, David, had to like all produce these statements, that, you know, about, you know, the fact that they were supporting folks in the community. I think that really kind of created this crest if we think about, you know, our educational environment as a river, like it is the peak. And so, I mean, as you might imagine, folks are reaching out to my company and my colleagues who do this work in our state saying, help, we need help. We got to address this. And if I'm honest with you, I was skeptical. I was like, you're just calling because something happened. It's the new hot um, thing. Yes, you know, mm -hmm. in education, we have these pendulums, and this yeah. definitely felt like a pendulum in the summer. And I had to have transparent conversations with district leaders to say, um, if you want us to support you in this journey, we can do that. We know how to, to create changed environments that benefit the needs of all students. But you have got to make this a movement and not a moment. Yep, it's my don't line. make this your yeah. Don't make mm -hmm. this just what you do in response, but really be willing to do the hard work of looking at yourself and how you're either sustaining inequities or intentionally working to dismantle them. So you know we have been busier than we've uh, than ever, um, really trying to support folks with issues of equity. I would also say the landscape here in Indianapolis. Uh, in the surrounding areas, many districts are starting to recruit the directors of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Again, trying to have um, this outward-facing um, appearance that they're committed to the work. And and really, I I believe that that uh, that that's their intention. They want to do well by all students. But what I know for sure is, Oprah would say is that folks don't really know what that requires when they ask mm -hmm. for help in that area. Yeah. yeah. I think going back to the summer, a lot of a lot of people ask me, you know, why why did you put out the statement? I said, I didn't put out the statement so people can know where I stand. I think people that know me know where I stand. I put out the statement to show you that I wasn't afraid to speak out boldly about it, right? Like and mm -hmm. proudly. I think mm -hmm. that's the difference, right? Like and a lot of principals that I talked to that did statement said the same thing. People know where we stand on this. We know this mm -hmm. is appalling. It's criminal. It's disgusting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It was, you know, the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor was murder, right? Flat out. That's not mm -hmm. what we were trying to, what we were trying to let you know is we're not afraid to speak out, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of, of repercussions or anything like that, right? And so mm -hmm. I think that's, that's where that was. As far as these schools re recruiting and hiring these directors, first of all, I'm appreciative because it, it, folks that do this work like yourself and, and other folks that are getting these jobs, it's about time that they're being rewarded for their work and having an opportunity to make a living. But I don't make a living, but make a difference. And for so long, yeah. school districts have skated around this topic. Or to your point, mm -hmm. they were afraid to air their dirty laundry. But yeah. now they're hiring these folks. And at least the districts that I've talked to and people in these districts, they've given these people in these roles full autonomy, autonomy to drastically change things and have uncomfortable conversations and push yeah. the envelope and narrative. And that's what I'm most excited about. These positions that I believe that I've seen are not just figurehead in positions. These positions well, are built yeah. to do real work. Yeah. And that's the key. I The folks that are highly qualified that are ending up in these positions are friends of mine, people that I admire and respect and people who I go to for support. And what I know about them is they will refuse to be that figurehead. And going uh -huh. into even the application process, they are very clear, speaking straight words about their intention. And here I'm showing up fully. You know, I don't know if you ever experienced this, David, but it used to be, I think, that um, a lot of educators of color felt a need to minimize themselves in a way. Mm -hmm so that there yeah. was this cultural fit. 
actually, uh, the, the ladies that you uh, spoke with a couple of weeks ago were mentioning this, mm-hmm. um, just about showing up. And I think that, um, that now that wave has passed, that the folks that are in these positions are very clear that they're going to challenge people's thinking. They're going to have conversations about racism and prejudice and, mm-hmm. and um, really uh, challenge people to have hard conversations about who they are and what they do. So I'm pretty proud of my colleagues who are doing this work across the state and any chance I get, I'm, I'm supporting them. I love it. So, so Doc, we have a, we have a question from from somebody that's, that's really good. Kind of goes on this topic. Mm-hmm. So it says, okay. other than hiring and retaining more teachers of color, what action steps can schools take to move the needle of DEI? And so she also mentioned not just, but in addition to. So in addition to hiring uh, teachers of, and retaining teachers of color, what other things can schools do to move that needle of DEI? Because right now it seems like that's the go to. Let me get more black folks yeah. in the school. Right. And I think I checked Mm -hmm. that box. What else can schools do to move that needle for DEI? Yeah. So as you said, everybody's kind of, this is the the bandwagon. And I I use that word not to, not to shame folks about wanting to do the work because Mm -hmm. I do feel that their intentions are pure. So what can you do? One of the first things you have to be clear on is define really what you mean when you say you want to engage in DEI work. What does that Mm -hmm. mean for you? What outcomes are you looking to achieve? So one of the popular books um, this summer, this year, uh, is uh, Dr. Uh, Kendi's work, How Mm -hmm. to Be an Anti-Racist. And if you've heard him, he always says, start with defining anti-racist, right? Because mm-hmm. people are like, well, I'm not prejudiced. I don't treat anybody differently based on who they are. We all we spend all this time talking about what we're not doing and we don't talk about what we do. So to mm-hmm. this question is really to identify what are the outcomes you're looking to achieve. If, if, if you ask me to come and um brainstorm with you i'm going to be asking you those questions what are the outcomes you want to achieve and i think once you come to that then the the roadmap becomes a little clearer but this isn't a lockstep process uh it's not like do this this and this and check you've done it (laughs) but what it does require is for you to develop the time to uh, support your educators and yourself as a leader to develop, I always say three sets, uh, an equity focused mindset, an mm. equity focused skill set, and then equity focused tool sets. You gotta be very intentional about all three of those things. It's not just putting posters up on the wall, it's thinking differently, it's changing your mindset, exploring your biases. It's being able to have the skill set to have racialized conversations. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's having the tool sets to know how to take best practice and make it meaningful to students academically, behaviorally, social, emotionally. So lots of things to do, but you got to be really clear up first on what you want the outcomes to be. Yeah. I'm, back in September of 2019, uh, the school I, I, I lead, we, we brought in a DEI uh, trainer to try to train us because one of the things that I that I always thought about when I worked at Tinley um, is Tinley we never had a DEI statement right and I I don't know if it was because it was a predominantly black network led by black people with black kids mm-hmm. so we we wrote one at summit this is now this is September 2019 so I just want to do a timeline for people uh-huh. so we we we, we had this conversation. Identifying mm-hmm. our own biases as, as, as uh, teachers and principals and, and things like black and white staff, right? Mm-hmm. We, we crafted a DEI statement as a staff, right? Mm-hmm. Went through the series of these processes. So now let's fast forward to March, right? When all of this, when school shut down and the George Floyd and all this, these things happened and these statements came out. And one of the things that I, I, I was proud that we did was we started this conversation before, as you mentioned before, it became a movement. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before it became a moment, we wanted it to be a movement in our school, right? Right. And so, but now, what what we've got to do is, what does that second phase look like? And that's what I'm trying to to push myself and in our schools. What does it look like after that, right? So once you've identified and made it a movement, 
right? Mm -hmm. How do you keep that momentum going and keep against? Because as I said, as I said back then, this will die down, right? We will go through this period of time where black people won't be killed by police officers on camera, right? And Mm -hmm. these things will happen and, and we're, we're entering happier times because, you know, we're about to get 45 out of office, right? And so it, <laughs> things some, will be better. For some, that's a Right, for some, right? <laughs> but I, but what, I, what I don't want to happen is people get, it start going in cruise control. Yeah, right? so remember my analogy of Crest, right? Mm-hmm. So then it's the, it's, the, it's the recession of these conversations. I have the same fear, David, I really do. Um, but here's the thing that keeps me motivated. Um, I think what I try really hard to do is make sure that when I'm connecting with educators and with leaders, I really don't use the term diversity, equity, and inclusion as like a thing, DEI. Instead, people hear me talk more about educational equity. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I take that right from Glenn Singleton. Uh, who has done all the work on courageous conversations. And he says, educational equity is about raising the achievement of all students while narrowing the gap of the students mm-hmm. who are not performing aligned with expectations. And at the same time that you do that, you reduce the predictability of the students at the top and the students at the bottom. So how Mm -hmm. do we make this last? I think you make it last by not having a conversation about DEI, but really focus on educational equity, which is about all students. Whenever you find that you are siloing students and saying, well, this is something we need to do for the X kids, then once you feel like you've satisfied that, it goes away. So by having this perspective about equity, and making sure that you're reviewing your policies, your practices, and your procedures to ensure that what you are doing benefits all students equally. I think that's how you make this a, a long, sustaining process. Yeah, I always tell my tattoo, we're also fighting for education liberation, right? To break the shackles and the chains that have held us all back. Right, that's and to push us yep. yeah, uh-huh. this liberation piece. And so, uh, a, a mentor of mine, Chris Stewart, always talks about. He always says, "Are we asking the question, how are the children?" Right, and so, like, always yes. keeping that in the forefront. And we talk about that a lot. I ask you, like, how are the children? Right, and making sure the children are well. So, you know, mm-hmm. they, I, I want folks that are in the comments. We have to jump into, like I said, the real nerdy and educational stuff. And so, the work that Doc is doing. And one of the the first questions I want to go to is. Mm-hmm. Why do so many students of color, specifically black students, get referred to special education, right? A lot of the work you yeah. do are working with schools and, and, and uh, their sped practices and things like that. Why is there so many kids, and I'm not just saying that are qualified as special ed, but that are being yeah. referred. That's why I said use the word right. referred. Why right. are so many of color, or specifically black kids, in your experience and things that you've seen being referred to special education? Well, I'm glad that you clarified that statement referred, right? Because one of the, the, the essential things I have to communicate to people whenever we're working on issues of disproportionality is that you don't not refer a student for evaluation because they're Black and you're watching your numbers. No, if mm-hmm. a student is in need of that level of support, that's what we do. But mm-hmm. to your point, why are so many students even referred? There are, there's a lot of research around this. And when I um, studied at IU under Dr. Reskiba, who's like the guru of disproportionality um, nationally, what we found was that there were multiple factors that were connected to one's increased risk for referral to special education. So issues of poverty, we know poverty, you know, leads to increased risk for educational issues and students of color are disproportionately um, um, impacted by poverty because of systemic racism, right? So we're not blaming families here. It's it's a societal issue. Um, So that's one reason. Um, there's the unequal educational opportunities where the opportunities of students of color, of color are oftentimes limited because of 
the settings in which they find themselves, right? Some of our students of color are not in settings that are the most well-funded. And so we know that there's a direct proportion in between those outcomes and their opportunities to learn. But here's a couple of things that I think you uh, and others on um, the stream tonight probably feel more often, and that is the, the special education uh, eligibility process itself is super subjective. <laughs> yeah. um, it is really because a teacher is expressing concern about meeting the needs of a student in a classroom. I don't know why Renee is not getting it. All the other kids are getting and instead of having expertise in differentiating and really mm -hmm. changing the relevancy of the way in which they're instructing, I need I need somebody else to take care of it. And I don't think that that's always malicious. I don't even think it's usually conscious. It is that I don't know, I'm experiencing the fact that this student is not learning and I need them to get some support. Mm -hmm. People often see special education as a resource, right? They see it as mm -hmm. an additional resource that they want to connect students to. And so if you have students who are showing more risk factors in the classroom, then you're utilizing that referral process to help. And then just a couple of other things. A lot of times as a school psychologist, I would get referrals related to behavior. That was that was going to be my question. And, and yes. why is so much behavior and not, mm -hmm. to your point, the academic acumen of the Not that the child, you know, has a learning disability that we need to put supports in to close the gap, but it is how mm -hmm. they act in class, right? Right. And so this is really where um, I have done a lot of work with educators and that's helping them understand the difference that makes a difference. The mm -hmm. way students present, especially if there's a cultural mismatch between the, the teacher and the student, there's a lot of misinterpretations about the intentions of that student. And so mm -hmm. something must be wrong. It can't just be different. I'll give you an example. One of the, my favorite things to talk to teachers about is back channeling. Back channeling is when students are in your classroom and no matter how the no matter the fact that you have told them a million times raise your hand before speaking, which I think <laughs> we need to we need to even investigate why we do that. But that's what we do. Raise your hand. Yeah. Don't everybody we can't have everybody blurting out. But you have these students who are chronically, hey, Mr. McGuire, this is, is that like when? And my mama said, like, and they're very emotionally expressive and they talk out. Sometimes they raise their hand as they blurt out, right? Yeah. But that's mm -hmm. really back channeling. Back channeling is a culturally mediated behavior to show you, the teacher, that I am listening and engaged. But as soon as that behavior of blurting out happens, we judge it as wrong because we have said a thousand times, don't do it. But what we fail to understand is it's culturally mediated. Now that doesn't mean we allow all 30 of our students on Zoom or in the classroom to blurt out, but it does mean that we temper our judgment of it and we change our interpretation of it. So I'm telling that story because that's an example, but there are many other examples of behaviors that happen that teachers misinterpret as wrong when they're just culturally mediated. Things that teachers need to develop more cultural knowledge around how to uh, mutually adapt to. So you teach students that your behavioral expectations to fluency, and at the same time, you temper your judgments of them. You become aware of them first, and then you you work on them. So all of those things really impact then a teacher reaching out to their intervention team saying, help, I don't know how to support this student fully. They see that as a, as a resource, and that increases those referral rates. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things that I've seen, and, and we've tried to do it, our network, and I've seen other schools try to do it, is push for the MTSS process, right? Multi-tier system yeah. support, right? To make right. sure, to your point, that before we even talk about the referral for special education, what interventions have we put in place? Have we exhausted all resources within the school to close mm -hmm. this gap, whether it's behaviorally, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or whether it's academically. But to that behavior mm -hmm. point, 
that you mentioned. So at Tinley, you know, and, and Penny Gregory, an educator that I respect on here, she's worked at Tinley. Okay. You know, we, we have, yeah, uh, we have at Tinley this idea of raise your hand for permission to speak, right? Where I think mm -hmm. the mindset has to change in what we're changing at Tinley is that's a way of teaching in the, the younger grades, kindergarten, mm -hmm. first grade, how to have an academic discourse with a large group, right? Mm -hmm. But as kids mm -hmm. get older, you move away from that and you teach mm -hmm. them other ways to, to agree and disagree and to speak out. But it's not this, well, I have to raise my hand and wait to be caught on. That no, you can acknowledge mm -hmm. how you feel, whether it's not verbally yeah. or verbally. Yeah. But I think that idea of raise your hand before you speak, it's okay in the younger grades because you're teaching mm -hmm. discourse, right? Mm -hmm. You're teaching discourse, you teach them how to have a conversation. But mm -hmm. to your point, your mindset, if a kid does blurt out, it shouldn't be automatically, it's a punishment. It's just saying, hey, right. I know you want to speak, but let, you got to get, you got to respect the floor for somebody else. But again, right, the right, mindset right. of schools and educators mm -hmm. must change around that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, yeah. and I think that's, that's one of the things that, that pushed me to your work and the work that you're doing around special education. So in, in that same boat of special education, mm -hmm. um, as you know, in your work, uh, there are schools that struggle with either academic performance or suspension rates um, mm -hmm. of students who do identify as special education. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this is the case that schools are struggling to close the academic gap for students in special education? And why are special education students the ones getting suspended the most? What have you <laughs> seen you know, in your work? Why is this the case? Yeah, so I can't always say that special education students are the ones getting suspended the most, but you are absolutely right. They are suspended at high rates. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually support all of the uh, districts in our state of Indiana, along with the team, um, the disproportionality team at the state. We provide all the technical assistance to all districts that are our compliance with disproportionality. And as we are uh, looking at kind of the root cause of those issues, it really is around a lot of the things that you just mentioned, David, around, you know, schools are working hard to establish what they want to uh, call multi-tiered systems of support. Mm -hmm. But if I'm honest, what I see in terms of the policies and the way in which those things are implemented is really remnants of RTI, right? This mm -hmm. more problem-solving approach. It's not really multi-tiered systems of support. And to the educators that are on the stream tonight, there is a difference. The, so it's not just that we provide interventions and check, we did that for six weeks, done. No, multi-tiered systems of support is this ongoing, continuous data collection, data analysis, and problem-solving that has multiple iterations that is then connected with multiple levels of support. And so when students are usually identified as students with special needs, for some reason, I think that general ed teachers and even to some degree administrators say, well, they already get this resource, so we're not gonna include them in NTSS support. No, mm -hmm. that should not be we still have to problem solve around all of our students. Back to the educational equity definition, we are working to support the achievement of all students. So when you don't have systems of support, particularly for special education students outside of their resource teachers or their classroom uh, teachers, if they're in a self-contained setting, there's only so much that those folks can do. We really need this the same kind of wraparound process with multiple levels of support that we do um, in some cases well, in other cases not so well for our general ed students. And so if you are not allowing that process to also happen with your special ed students, then we can't support their achievement. They still need yeah. support. Special education is not the only resource they should be receiving. And, and to follow up that, do you, do you see that it's a lack of maybe schools having enough people with the capacity to understand the inner workings of differentiation, the inner workings of, um, you know, NTSS and interventions and things mm -hmm. like that? Do you see that as, as maybe the concern why districts do reach out, you know, to, to uh, folks like you and your company? Because there is that lack of capacity of understanding because, you know, those that those that are education majors that went to school to be teachers, 
there was two or three classes of a little bit of yes. this, right? And typically That's not taught by an expert, but taught by a teacher, right? Yes. Yes. You know, you don't have the folks like you or the folks like Penny yeah. Gregor who spent their life in this work yeah. teaching yeah. teachers um, in this. And so preparation programs are struggling with that. Do you see yeah. that as maybe a possible issue as well? Yeah, I mean, it really starts from a pre-service standpoint. Um, absolutely. I think the major issue in education is that we really have so little resources to do the things we need to do for students. And that's nobody's fault. We make the best out of what we have. But really, we need so much more. And what I notice a lot is that, look, educators are highly compassionate folks who are going to just go beyond, beyond and above to do what they feel like students need. But they sometimes do that without the expertise they knew, need to do that in a way that will produce the results that they want. Yes. I cannot mm -hmm. tell you the amount of uh, school teams that show me their school improvement plans or whatever professional development plans that use the right jargon but don't use the evidence of the real journey that it takes to produce the outcome. So I think it really is this misalignment between a, a sincere desire and passion to do um, what's best for students and a lack of knowledge and expertise, resources and support in order to really get a, a good action plan done. Now you mentioned Penny. Penny's doing great work with colleagues um, to really start to help develop mm -hmm leaders to know how to how to think about these issues more comprehensively. And so we really need to kind of leverage this internal mentorship um, mm -hmm. process as much as we can in education, because we've begged for more resources and funding for years. And, you know, we, we're still trying to make the best of it. Yeah, I mean, this is the jargon without the evidence of the journey, right? My, my yeah. um, I've learned it as a school leader, right? Having the heart to do the work will get you the results with a lowercase r. But yeah. the understanding, the understanding yeah. of how to move children will get you the results with a capital R, right? Like so yeah, while you that. need the heart, right? While you need the heart, and that's great, you also need the understanding and the institutional yeah. knowledge and the foundation, right, to actually get the results. So I'm not I might, I might use that. I might I use that. that. I like yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I'm learning that, and that's I, I tell myself that, right? People know where my heart is, right? Yeah. And I, I'm yeah. getting results, but I'm, I'm getting lowercase r results. Yeah, yeah. our school safe. Yeah, kids are happy. Yeah, teachers are, but we're not getting the results of outcome. Mm -hmm. I have to get a better mm -hmm. understanding of, of mm -hmm. how to do the work so I can get the mm -hmm. results that move kids forward. So, you know, I that, love that's that. kind of, yeah, that, that's where I'm at. So, uh, now that we painted the picture for special education, right? Uh huh. This is a David McGuire question that I want to answer to as I'm trying to understand this. Okay. What does it mean for classrooms to be culturally responsive, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, as you talked about earlier with the D, identify and defining yourself anti-racism. Yeah, I'm trying yeah, to define yeah. for me and my school summit, what does it look like for our school, our classrooms to be culturally responsive? Okay, yeah, well, that's an important question. So, I mean, I think in short, it means that a culturally responsive classroom is a classroom in which the cultures of all students, I'm not talking about black or brown, right? All mm -hmm. students are validated and affirmed, mm, validated um, affirmed. And, yep. and are really led by educators, not led, facilitated by educators who have the ability to effectively um, respond to cultural difference. So I, I guess, uh, uh, um, you know, that might be a succinct way of saying it. But in my work with educators, what I always tell them is culturally responsive practice is not a variable. It's mm. not a thing. It is a construct. So that's what people don't get. They're so looking for the ability to go into a classroom and say, yep, check, yep, check. But it's the, it's a construct. I usually have, um, I usually in my work, I'll have like um, uh, um, a um, a great some grapes, and I'll say, "Hey, I have a bunch of grapes. You want some?" And I really have a bunch of grapes, the whole bunch, the one that has the stems and they're connected mm -hmm. and all of that. 
And then I'll pull grapes off of that bunch and I'll say, now in my hand, I have 10 grapes. So here's a bunch of grapes. Like colloquially, I still say a bunch of grapes, but that's not the bunch. What's represented by the bunch? It's all the connectedness. It's the stem. Culturally responsive practice is the same way. You cannot take the grape off of the stem and say, here's the bunch. It's, it's no longer CR. It has to always be connected. I'm bringing up that point because for so, so often I see educators say, well, I'm going to play hip hop music today or, <laughs> or I'm going to have all these very, um, these these books from multicultural authors with all these different students all of that is needed look mm -hmm. if your students love and enjoy hip-hop and you need to use that as a bridge to teach a standard you should do that if mm -hmm. you're if you have students of multiple cultures and they need to see themselves in the text you need multicultural books but you can't just say you're culturally responsive because you did either of those things Mm -hmm. It is, it is, uh, it is the integration of your ability as an educator to do your own work, to understand the culture, your own culture first and how you show up, but also then the cultures of your students and combine that with what you know about best practices and how to make that relevant for your students based on their culturally mediated ways of learning. So it's kind of like a Venn diagram. Here's cultural mm. competency and here is effective practice. The merger of those two things is culturally responsive practice. Mm. Now I'll say all that, David, and people will still be like, yeah, so what do I do? <laughs> no, but look, but see, now you can't, you can't give them everything, right? I, I know folks tuning in to the Precinct Podcast, and, and you, you're getting a lesson today, right? And so we can't give them too much, Doc, because I need them to reach out to you to get the, the ending, the, the rest well, of it. Well, that I, part, I appreciate that, but my bigger point is I'm never going to tell you to do X, Y, or Z. Rather, mm -hmm. I'm going to teach you how to explore your own culture to understand how you show up in the world, how you see things, what you know about your students, and then teach you about all the ways culture impacts learning and behavior. And then you'll be able to put those two things together. So it's not an easy journey. It's a long journey, which actually I think, David, might be a reason why we continuously talk about it for all these decades <laughs> because it's hard work it's hard work it is your your hip-hop reference brought up something early in my teaching career and i you know so i worked at a high school i taught high school english um and one of my other counterparts she was a you know white girl we were both young right 23 and teaching high school and you know and so she came to me one day she was like hey i'm thinking about you know we're doing poetry and a poem you and she came to me she was like hey i was thinking about for the kids, right? If we were gonna, we we're gonna read, you know, uh, Rose, uh, Rose that grew from concrete by Tupac, you know. And I was just like, oh, okay. And I was like, why? She was like, I wanted to relate to him. And I was like, yeah, it's cool. I was like, so what's the, what theme are you trying to push, right? She's like, well, you know, we're supposed to read The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, but I don't think they're gonna really get into that. I said, listen, it's not about them getting into the poem. Why mm -hmm. they should get into it? What it's really about mm -hmm. is they need to understand the essence and the element of the poem. And if yeah. the rose that grew from concrete doesn't help them master that standard, then it's not appropriate. You shouldn't just incorporate a hip hop reference for the sake of incorporating because, a hip hop reference. Yeah, you should right. incorporate it because it will tie better than the road not taken by Robert Frost. But if the right, road not right. taken by Robert Frost gets them to the standard and the, and the element, then you just gotta roll with it and you gotta do a better yeah. job of how you can make the road not taken more exciting. Maybe relevant, right, right. If you right, want right, to do yeah. something, wrap it to them, right? But your hip hop right. reference made me think about that for sure. Yep, so, yep, so, yep. so here's a piece too. And so why do you feel so many teachers, black and white teachers, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not just black mm -hmm. teachers, but white teachers as well. And mm -hmm. lack the skills in delivering culturally responsive instruction. So maybe the example I just gave with the mm -hmm. two poems, why do you think black and white teachers lack the skill of delivering culturally responsive instruction? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. First, I think it's back to the point we've talked about. It is really a lack of complete understanding of what that means. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's not a, a, a lot of knowledge, but one of the things we do at Virtuoso is when we get to 
first of all, we do heavy, heavy work, sometimes years of work just on the cultural competence side. Like, do you have the mindset, the skill set? Those are, those are really part of your own development. We talk about biases, et cetera. But when it comes down to thinking about changes in your practice instructionally, we have to do some explicit teaching. So mm. I find that people don't know about the culturally mediated ways in which we communicate or how we respond or how we deal with conflict or how we interact socially. And they absolutely don't know from an instructional standpoint how kids process information and how all of that is culturally mediated. So, you know, you think about those big gaps. They're trying so hard, like your colleague, to make things relevant without the context of what is causing the disconnect. So I'll give you another example. There are some teachers, this is maybe a, a behavioral one, but it, it, can, it also shows up uh, academically. There, you've probably experienced, it, experienced uh, students who are in the classroom, they're supposed to be taking notes, like copying from the board or the, the uh, projector, but they don't have anything on their paper, nothing. Mm -hmm. They have not written anything, but they have looked around the room. They see what everybody else is doing. And then a teacher will say, Renee, what did I just say? And Renee can tell you. And the teacher's like, dog on it. I thought I was going to catch Renee. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you didn't because why? You are focusing on Renee looking around the room and not following the directive to write or copy because you believe that the way to 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 get that content to long-term memory is to copy to take notes so you can review them but there are some students who are field dependent students that mm. means they use a spectator approach for learning so they start to master important content just by watching by noticing what their neighbor has written down by noticing what you star on the on the Elmo, like that's that's how that's their mental note taking. And so, if you have a student who net, who does not write notes, or the notes that they do are not comprehensive, mm -hmm. yet they can still tell you answers. They're still dependent students. There are multiple mm -hmm. other kind of factors that we go through with teachers as we're talking about these culturally mediated ways of processing information. But that's the part that nobody teaches our our teachers. So they mm -hmm. can't really be responsive to that in the classroom. So we come in and support them with that. So the, again, that, that goes to that teacher preparation, right? Because you yeah. teach preparation. They teach you, hey, your kids got to be engaged, right? Board equals paper, paper equals board, right? That old, that yes. old saying, right? And, and, and yeah. just because the kids that don't take notes is looking around, right? That don't mean they're not taking things in. They're soaking in a lot. Exactly. But again, exactly. It's a mindset change. And so uh mm -hmm. real quick i want to give a shout out to, to uh Unk here is what i call him he wanted to know about that elephant yes. in the back I, I know what the question is about but does that elephant no, have sir. a baby no okay. sir. <laughs> <laughs> so that's always um that's always a question uh so that's funny uh i'm not a member of the divine nine although okay. it would be an honor to be however okay. the elephant is an analogy that we use in our work all the time mm. at Virtuoso. And that is, what are the elephants? What are the things that we talk around, but we're not mm. talking about extensively? And you cannot ever create an equitable environment. You certainly can't implement culturally responsive practice if you are not willing to highlight the elephants. There are many things that we talk around and we just do not, we shy away from calling a thing a thing. And that's very important to our work um, here at Virtual. So everyone who's ever done any work with us knows about the elephant. Okay. So while, while it's not a, uh, a, a symbol for the divine night, it is a symbol no. for something. So we definitely yes. got it. Okay. Absolutely. So, um, and we're, you know, we're almost at our hour. So, the other question I have, we talked about. So I'm going to jump to uh, another one. And, and, and this mm -hmm. is more so for the time that we're in. I was going to ask about, you know, how do we make, how do schools make sure that, that uh, we get away from the whole moment and movement? But we've talked about that. But I want to talk okay. about how do we, how do you feel cultural responsive teaching is going in a time where a lot of schools are virtual? 
Um, um, how, how do you feel like, <laughs> I mean, first of all, we're struggling <laughs> to uh, do virtual learning, let alone yeah. responsive, but it's important yeah. that we do that. that is. So how do you feel is when you talk to schools, how do you think they're struggling with that? And what advice, you know, what's some free advice? Cause I want folks to still, you know, <laughs> contact you out. What free advice do you have for schools to make sure that they're still being culturally responsive in a virtual setting? Yeah, so this is this is tough because listen, educators are doing an amazing job. Uh I don't know how they are figuring out the things they're figuring out. Um so kudos to all of you who are um boots on the ground really doing the work. I appreciate you. Um I still have a student in high school and I appreciate you very much. If I'm honest, and I think mm -hmm. educators would say this we are just trying day by day to do the best that we can. And I think as a result, um, we are leaning on things that we are very comfortable with, those things that are not uncertain because we have too much uncertainty. Like we can't take anymore. So <laughs> because of that, I think some of, um, especially for those educators that, have less fluency around issues of equity. I think that mm. is not necessarily right now their priority, um, which I understand. But I encourage people, despite the fact that we are in a pandemic, I think because we are in a pandemic, to really center equity in your work. You mm. got to center equity. What does it mean to center something? It means to have that be the the or the lens through which you make all of your decisions um and so the question should be what are the barriers that my students and their families might be experiencing and how might i how might i be responsive to those how can i be intentional about noticing about measuring and about responding to the ways in which students are not benefiting right now that requires a lot of flexibility, but it also requires us to always remember that relationships precede learning. Mm -hmm. That's, that's got to be the focus right now. And we know that um, culturally responsive teachers are ones that have established meaningful relationships with their students as one of the components of the bunch, the construct of culturally responsive uh, pra practice. So I would just say lean into focusing on relationship building. Um, the truth is we're never really going to fully be back to the way things were. We're going to be always needing to now moving forward, think about all the gaps that our students are experiencing. We've got to do a lot of hard, difficult, culturally responsive, social and emotional work. We've got mm -hmm. to understand trauma that students have been through, but we've got to do that all through the lens of equity. Equity has to be the center of all of those conversations. I'm saying all that to say, luckily we are still training educators every day in workshops around culturally responsive practice. We are still passing on the knowledge. I can't speak to what the implementation looks like right now um, mm -hmm. because I'm not on those Zoom calls every day. But um, from the teachers that I'm having dialogue with, it's on their radar. But again, I think that when times are hard, we are really um, leaning in things that we know for sure. And for mm -hmm. some teachers, that is equity. There are many teachers that are showing examples of how they're able to be flexible and meet the needs of all their students. But then there are some that are, are, are more focused on the traditional, let's get at the standards approach. And yeah. I don't judge, I don't judge either at this point, because it's a very, very hard, hard scenario to be in. Yeah, but, but I think lots too, of work you to said, do. putting that equity at the forefront, especially in this time, right? Not moving away from it and making sure mm -hmm. that while, while it needs to be at the forefront now, and also when we, when we do come on the other side, whatever that other side looks like, and, I always talk about the education this time or the education next time, right? Mm -hmm. Making sure it's at the forefront. So yeah, definitely appreciate yeah. that. You know, Don, we're at the end, but I want to close out this way with you. So what advice, uh, and mm -hmm. you've given a lot to us. I mean, you listen, first of all, you you put on a 55-minute free professional development for the <laughs> folks. I know the folks listening enjoyed it. I know when I share this link, that's what I'm going to encourage folks. Hey, 
listen to this for, for that reason. But what advice do you give to mm -hmm. school leaders like myself, teachers, uh, community members, parents, in relation to all that we've talked about, this the work you do, what advice do you give to the stakeholders for the children that we, we are all trying to serve? Yeah, so, I mean, very simply put, as you said earlier, how are the children? If we can maintain that as our focus, I think that that is what will unite us. We're always going to have the different lenses through which we approach what we need to do. But I would say for school leaders, when you think about educational equity, know that it's a journey. It's not a destination. It's not that you're going to bring in anybody and say, yep, we did that, now we got it. It is a long, long process that first has to really be um, connected to helping educators understand who they are. We call that doing self-awareness work or mirror work. Mm. So know that it's not a quick fix. Um, I think to parents, I'm a parent, I, again, my daughter's in college uh, figuring out virtual life and my son is in high school. And I would say to, um, other parents out there that look let's expect expect the best for our students and we've got to be their advocate even if you're not an educator like me you still do what you can to be an advocate for your student when you see that they're not connecting to instruction or they're having a behavior issue or they're sad or they need they're they're having a lot of um a, a emotional dysregulation you advocate on their behalf just in a simple in simple words just say i'm worried about my student reach out to me to someone they need you to be their advocate but and i would also say let's hold our students accountable and their teachers as well um that's that's what we i think one of the things we should um be committed to as as parents and as community i would say we need you as partners in education. I spoke earlier about the need for resources for people with various levels of expertise. I've been really excited to work with a couple of districts um, this year who are establishing community coalitions. Genius, like let's really yeah. use the voices of the community to help us problem solve how to become more equitable. So community partners i would say be a part of the solution um reach out to um school leaders re go to board meetings volunteer yourself i would say don't wait for someone to ask you there are things that we can identify for you to do if we know that you're willing and able so it really is a partnership uh, one of my favorite books for educators is a book by ellen amatea it's um developing culturally responsive family school partnerships um and in the book she really talks about how we have to not think about the old traditional ways of doing things but really be flexible in terms of using a strength-based approach for how we think about the assets that uh families bring as well as the role of of educators um, and so, yeah, we got to make we have to be committed, I think, to being on, on one team um, for the purposes of supporting all of our students. Excellent. So Di, I put at the bottom where folks can find you on Twitter um, to follow you on Twitter. Okay, but, thanks. but also just real quick, um, share with folks where, where can they find you? How can they reach out to you if they wanted to talk with you more? Um, and learn more mm -hmm. about your work or possibly, you know, contract you out to help with support for them. So in addition, obviously on Twitter, which I have scrolling at the bottom, how else can people mm -hmm. um, talk to you? Yeah, so Twitter, um, that's good. Or you can visit our website, which is Virtuoso Education Consulting. Um, our, our URL is www.virtuosoed.com. Uh, send me an email. My email is on that website. Um, and I'm happy to always talk. There are some lots of free resources that we have um, through the DOE. We have a free work resource on bias. We have a free resource on culturally responsive instruction. So I can point you to all those things um, with pleasure. Whatever you need, I'm at least willing to give you um, some advice about where to look next. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Thank you again for, for joining me tonight and, and, and dropping the knowledge and, 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 so, and helping me talk through some things. And, and I know the folks listening. So the folks that are listening currently, Let if you can like, the chat. 
yeah, go ahead and like and share this uh, this talk, this video, uh, this podcast with folks who you think be interested. If you listen to this later and listen to this after I post the link, share this with somebody who you think would want to hear this. There's a lot of good gym, gyms drop. And as I close out tonight, I just want to uh, encourage folks. Uh, the Recess Podcast, um, I, I host this podcast, but also host another podcast. I want to also highlight our umbrella podcast organization. So the Eight Black Hands, uh, Charles, Sharif, Ray, and Chris, um, they created this umbrella of dope shows. So I wanted to highlight those. So my other show, the AOS Podcast, is another one. Three Times Dope is a podcast. Libations with us and the Ed Pierce, all of those podcasts. So if you love education podcasts or podcasts just talking about real stuff, re, uh, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to our podcast. So I wanted to throw that plug out to our umbrella organizations. But also, I'll be back this Thursday. I'm pulling off two shows this week. Um, got two special guests with me. We're going to have a conversation just like this one for me to learn more. And so the title of <laughs> Thursday's episode is how education in Indianapolis can become more linguistically responsive. And so we're going to talk about how we can become more linguistically responsive. So I'm bringing on two awesome educators who's going to, um, who's going to drop some knowledge and gems. So I hope that folks will join us. That's this Thursday, 7.30 PM Eastern time, uh, streaming live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. So uh, check us out. But again, as I always say at the end of every show, uh, this has been the recess podcast where we have real conversations. Create the platform, control the conversation, and change the culture. Doc, I appreciate you uh, for coming on. God bless you. Uh, I know we'll link up again for sure. Yes. Thank everybody for tuning in, and have a good evening. Bye, everybody. Proud of you, David. Thank you. Thank you.